This week I was reminded by, of a concept that C.S. Lewis taught in his book, Four Loves. I was reading on prayer and then came across a quote of C.S. Lewis about friendship. And he makes the point that our deepest friendships in life rarely happen when it's just two friends. Friendships become better when it's three, four, or even more friends in a certain group. Now, that's odd because when I say the word friend, you usually think of one person. When I think of friendship, you think of two people who are friends. And yet C.S. Lewis makes this point. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. And it's true, if you think about it. Your deepest friendships are not just friendships with one other person. It's usually three or even more people who are a close-knit group of friends. And your experience of your friends is magnified as others experience your friends together. And when a certain person is missing in that friend group, elements of the friendship are missing. And you miss your friend, and you miss the friendship that was there when they are gone. And this is the same point Paul is making in the book of Ephesians. Maybe we don't see it at first. But one of the things Paul is teaching in the book of Ephesians is it takes a community to know someone, especially God. It takes a whole community to see and know the infinite glory of God. Not just one of us can know that together. And we only know the glory of God when others come alongside us and help us see and know the glory of God together. Now, he teaches this point amidst controversy. He's writing to these churches in Ephesus because many of the Jews had begun to shun the Gentiles. They were not a part of the Old Testament covenant. They were not Jewish. They didn't celebrate the festivals. They didn't take part in circumcision. They weren't a part of this glorious history that God had with the Jewish people. And now they are claiming to follow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the Jews are saying, no, 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 no. You're not a part of the family of God. You're a Gentile. And Paul writes this letter mainly to Gentile believers to say, hold on, if you have believed in Christ, you have everything, everything that God would offer His people. In Christ, you have been given all of the spiritual blessings that God would give. You are a part of the glory of God. And he makes this point that it is not until Jew and Gentile And folks who would normally hate each other and have nothing to do with each other outside of the church, it is not until these groups of people come together and know God through the glory of the gospel together that we see clearly the manifold wisdom of God that he says in Ephesians 3.10. 
We, we don't see and know God until we see the church, Jew, Gentile, all peoples, all nations worshiping God together. That's how we know God in his fullest. That is how we see the glory of God, the manifold wisdom of God. It's through a community, diversity, united around the gospel. And so today, as we think about how might we know God as individuals, we are only going to know God as individuals in a community that is knowing God together. And that's why in our text here, Paul gives us three gospel-centered prayers that we can begin to pray for our church family, that we can begin to pray for our friends in this community, gospel-centered prayers that would call us and help us and cause us to know God better. And the first prayer is this, that we should pray for one another. We should pray that we would all see all we have in the gospel. Pray that you would see all that you have in the gospel. We should pray that for one another. Notice verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to these Gentile believers, I know you are Christians. I have heard of this move of God in your community and how you turn to follow Jesus. And then I heard of your love toward all the saints, the way you are sacrificially giving yourself over to one another. And he says, knowing you have believed the gospel, verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks. I praise God for what he's doing in your midst through the preaching and believing of the gospel, remembering you in my prayers. And what is his prayer for these Gentile believers? It begins in verse 17 when he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Here, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler, the master, the sovereign of all creation. Jesus, the Savior. Christ, the King, the Messiah. He, he says, I am praying that His Father, and, and now in Him has become your Father. I, I am praying for you. I am praying to Jesus' Father for you. And notice the way He describes the Father. The Father of glory. Now, in Ephesians, this word glory is tightly connected to the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is Jesus' Father, who has become your Father, has given you a glory in the gospel. It is a glory that is to resound to His glorious praise for His grace. He has given you the gospel so that you would praise Him, so that you would give Him Glory. And he says, I am praying to the Father, notice as he continues, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now let's unpack that. He's praying to the Father who's given you the gospel, and now he's praying that the Father would give you something else. Notice the spirit of wisdom. He's referring to the Holy Spirit here who gives us understanding. The spirit who's opened our eyes to the gospel would give us understanding of the gospel. And then he says of revelation. This means unveiling, that he would show you what he has given you. And notice how this is described in the knowledge of him. And the word knowledge here means in your experience of him. And so in Christ, you have God as your Father. 
you are experiencing a personal relationship with him. And as you do that as a believer, Paul says, I am praying that you would have wisdom and I am praying that you would see something. Now, he's not referring here to new wisdom. He's not referring here to a new revelation, a new word. Notice the context of the wisdom and revelation that he is praying for. It is in the context of knowing God as Father. As you know God as Father, I am praying that you would see something. I am praying that you would see things. And what are these things? Well, in context, Paul has described these things. As he has described all that you have in Christ. In verses 3 through 14, he he gives this litany of of concepts that, that come when we believe the gospel and things that become true of us. When you believe the gospel, Paul says, you are chosen, you have been given holiness, you have predestined, you were adopted, you are being redeemed, you have been given grace. You have been given wisdom from God. You have been given forgiveness. You have been given the Holy Spirit. And so what is Paul praying for here? That as you know God as your Father, that you would begin to have wisdom in all of those things that the gospel has given you. That you would begin to see all of those things that the gospel has done for you. What Paul is praying for these Gentile believers is now that you are Christians, I'm praying that you would begin to see all that means for your life. I am praying that you would begin to see every spiritual blessing that the gospel gives to you in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, also, it means this primarily, is that when we begin to follow Christ, We don't all of a sudden level up to some new levels of spirituality as we follow him. A lot of times we teach that in the church. You believe the gospel. You believe Jesus died for your sins. You believe he lived a perfect life for you. You believed he died died and was raised from the dead. And you're following him. Okay, now let's move on to some better stuff. You believe that. You got that, okay? You say the prayer, you sign the card, you're a member of a church. Now let's move on to some new and better things. What Paul is telling the Gentile believers is you never move on to new and better things. You are given the gospel to go deeper into the gospel, to to walk into the gospel. And the Spirit opens your eyes and gives you understanding of this new world in the gospel that God has given you. And it will take you eternity to dive into the depths of God's love for you. It will take you eternity to dive into what it means God has adopted you as a son or daughter. It will take eternity for you to learn what it means to be redeemed. It will take eternity for you to learn what, what it means to be blameless before God. God in love. It will take eternity for you to unpack the inheritance that God has given you in the gospel. Treasure chest of glory after glory after glory for eternity. And that is his prayer. That now that you are following Jesus, you would begin to understand and see all that God has already given you. 
It's not that you're praying for God to give you something you don't have. He's praying that you would see in the gospel everything that you already have. The gospel. God's plan to redeem a people for himself. The apex of that plan is that he would take on flesh and die for your sins and be raised from the dead. And the culmination of that plan is a kingdom with no sin and no death forever. And he says, I want your mind and your heart and your life to be open to to see all of that and what it means for your life. I want you to understand who you are and what you have in the gospel. And so the heart of Christianity... It is diving into the gospel, not moving on from the gospel. Figuring out how the gospel, what you already have, applies to everything in life. Daily, you wake up and your mission is, what does it mean that God could not love me any more or less today? He loves me infinitely. And how am I going to live in light of that? What are my conversations going to look like today in light of the gospel? At all our different stages in life. When you're 10 and the the gospel, you hear the gospel at church and it's this sort of fairy tale, adventure story. And then all of a sudden you're 17 and you're, you're struggling with certain sins and what you're going to do with your life. And then all of a sudden you're 35 and you're married and you have kids or, or maybe you're still single and you're trying to figure out how to live your life. It is the gospel that you need at every stage. And Paul says, I want you to see the gospel in all of life at every stage, who you are and what you have. And when you're 78 and you're imagining what your last breath is going to be like, what you're going to see, what you're going to hear as the monitor flatlines, you need the gospel in that moment. And I want you to see the gospel in all of life. I want you to see the wisdom of the gospel. I want your eyes to be open to the gospel. And so we must pray that for one another as a church family. There are folks in here today who are doubting. They don't feel close to God. They're wondering why. It's not the same as it was at VBS, at church camp, when I was involved in the campus ministry. I don't feel as close to God and they're doubting. And you need to pray for them that they would see the gospel. And that in the gospel they would know God's disposition toward them has never once changed after they believe the gospel. He loves them. They are accepted. And you pray that they would see that. And you pray for one another that we would know that. There are many here today, they're struggling with their identity. They put all their stock into getting married. Finding their identity and being a husband or wife. And it is not what they thought it was going to be. And they're struggling with who they are. Some here today who they put all of their stock in what it would mean to have academic achievements, athletic achievements, and it fell short of joy. And you know, in your Bible fellowship groups, they confess that. And what should you do? Pray that they would see the gospel. 
and that their status as a son or daughter in Christ has not changed in the gospel, and that they would begin to find joy there and not in what they do, but who they are before God. There are many here today who are insecure. You have been betrayed and you have been hurt and you have been burned by friends, parents, spouse. And yet, and, and, and what you need today is to see the gospel. You need today to see that God will never betray you. If you are a Christian here today, God made a promise to you before the foundation of the world. Before he created it, he set his love upon you so he cannot and he will not forsake you in Christ. And it is eternal promise. And so you can be secure in the gospel. And so we pray for one another that we would be secure in seeing the gospel. Some of you come in here today and you feel unworthy because of your past. You have let God down. You have let others down. And we pray for you today that you would see in Christ there is no end to forgiveness because of the cross. The cross is an infinite payment for infinite sin debt and there's no end to it. And you would embrace that today through confession and sin. And so we pray the gospel for one another. And you think about your friends, you think about the way they're struggling, you think about your BFG, you think about your discipleship group. What do your friends in this church need? They need to see and understand the gospel, and that is our prayer for them today. But Paul gets even more specific here. I'm going to try to move fast today, but there's a lot here. Verse 18, we pray that we would see all we have in the gospel, and we pray that we would hope in the kingdom. Notice verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, as we look at verse 18, I want to I be clear. What he is talking about here at the end of verse 18, when he mentions, mentions inheritance, what he is talking about there is the kingdom, the kingdom that you now have because of the gospel that you have been summoned to that you have seen through the work of the Spirit. It is the kingdom. So inheritance is the kingdom. Now what is the kingdom? The kingdom, as we talk about a lot around here, is the presence of the rule of God. And we've seen the presence of the rule of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ. As He lived a perfect life, as He cast out demons, as He healed the sick, we see the presence of the kingdom in Jesus. That is the inheritance, the presence of the kingdom, where there is no sin, no death forever. Satan is defeated. Every tear is wiped away. All of our heart's desire has been met. That the presence of the kingdom that has come in Jesus, that is the inheritance that he is talking about here. And that kingdom is present in the church. Why? Because through the Spirit and the Word of Christ, Jesus is present as the kingdom, with the presence of the Spirit. And that's why in verse 13, the Spirit is called the seal or down payment of the kingdom. The Spirit comes into the church as the, as the down payment of what's coming in this kingdom where there will be no sin and death. We have the presence of the Spirit with us, the presence of God, the presence of the kingdom. But in verse 18, he's describing what that, the presence of the kingdom, what this inheritance does for the believer. 
And notice, he says, having your eye, the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is hope. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm praying through the presence of the kingdom, the spirit, in the context of the church, you would have hope. What is hope? A lot of times we think about hope and it's just, I hope that happens. And it's like a wish. Biblically, hope is a confident expectation. You're not wishing for something to happen. You're waiting for it to happen. And that's Paul's prayer for the church. It's through the presence of the Spirit, the inheritance, the kingdom that's in the church, you would begin to wait for the coming of this kingdom to be consummated. That's what he prays for us today. That you would wait on the kingdom. And notice the Spirit's work in showing us the kingdom. First of all, we see in verse 18, He reveals the hope of the kingdom. Our hearts are enlightened. All we are, our heart, the center of who we are, begins to see the kingdom through the the cross and resurrection of Christ. And if you are a believer, that's what's happened to you. When you heard the gospel, the Spirit shone in your heart that the eyes of your heart would see the kingdom in a cross and a resurrection as your only hope. So the Spirit reveals the hope of the kingdom in the gospel. And then he continues that you may know what is the hope to which you are called. It is the Spirit that calls us into this kingdom. Now hear the word call. It is an effectual call. It would be better to translate that summoned. It's not that you've just been invited into the kingdom. When you heard the gospel and your heart was changed, the Spirit summoned you and said, here's the kingdom, cross, resurrection, now you're coming with me forever to a place where there's no sin and death. And that's what the Spirit does does for us through the gospel. But also notice in verse 18, the Spirit creates this hope in the church. Notice how the text begins, or ends, sorry. That you would know the hope which He has called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance. Notice how it ends in the saints. So you would see the hope of the kingdom where? Where would you see the hope of the kingdom? In the saints. In one another. In the church. Paul says that's why he's given the Spirit to the church. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit lives in the church. The Spirit indwells us and unites us to one another from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different preferences, all kinds of races, all kinds of traditions. He unites us as one in the church. And he says, when you see that, you see the hope of the kingdom. Why? What's heaven going to be like? Jesus is going to be worshiped and adored from people all over the world, by people from, from, by people from all over the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to bow before King Jesus. And you are to see that hope in the church. And so you look around at the church and you see the kingdom. And what does that do in your heart? It causes you to wait for something better. You you see that in the church, right? And so there's some of you here today who are very cynical. Like me. (laughs) We live in a world that is full of sin and death and every day we wake up and there is more bad news. And even in your own life, 
There have been things in your life that you got your hopes up for. And they didn't happen. And it broke our hearts. There are things that we wanted so bad to fulfill all of our hopes and dreams, and it didn't do it. You even may have gotten that thing, whether it's a job or a family, and it didn't bring you joy that you thought, and your heart was crushed, and you're very cynical about the world. You walk around, and you're waiting for the worst-case scenario to unfold at all times. And so when a preacher says you should hope, you say, yeah, right. What am I going to hope for? How do I hope in something? Well, by the power of the Spirit, in the context of the church, we all here today should be hoping in the kingdom that is real and it is as true as the flesh and blood in the seats next to you. And we hope in something better. And so the church stirs up within us this confident expectation where we wait for something better, but we pray that for one another. There are young folks here today, and they are lured by the now. They can't see past the moment, and they are chasing the moment, and we should stop, and we should pray for them as their church family, that they would understand that there is something better coming to planet Earth in the kingdom of Christ, and you can wait for that. You don't have to give yourself over to all the stuff and all the pleasure in the moment. You have a kingdom that is coming. Hold on by the power of the Spirit and wait for it. Wait for it. It's going to be better. There are folks in our church and their health is fading. And they, they, they are beginning to despair. Because they weren't ready for this time in life. When you get hurt by just getting out of bed. Your body's breaking down and you look in the mirror and you see the wrinkles and you see the gray hair and it shocks you. And we should pray for them that they would hope in a kingdom when all of the effects of sin, even on your body, will be reversed. Remember that picture during VBS of me? That all week, that's what I'm going to look like in heaven. Because I held it up next to my face and said, you don't look anything like this. You're beginning to look a lot worse. And yet, in all seriousness, those things can cause despair in our hearts. And yet we should pray for one another. Who are, and this is the glory of the church. You have five-year-olds, you have 35-year-olds, and then you have 55, 70-year-olds, and we're all at different stages in life, but we should have one hope, and that is the kingdom that we're waiting for. And for every one of us, we should say, we are one day closer. When you open your eyes in the morning, you should say, I'm one day closer to the hope of the kingdom coming. And we should pray for one another that we would see it. Back to the first part, that we would see it that we would know it, that we would understand it, that we would begin to live for it. I want you to know the hope of the kingdom. Stop giving yourself over to lesser things, and we pray that for one another. So we pray that we would hope in the kingdom, and then we pray that we would trust in the power of Christ for his church. And I'm going to have to move through this very quickly. Verse 19, this is the final prayer that we would pray for the power of Christ for his church. Notice verse 19. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, again, the church, according to the working of his great might, 
There's just all kinds of superlatives here to describe the fact that you can't measure God's power. Listen, for eternity, we'll never get to the end of God's power. God's never going to do one thing. This is mind-blowing. I'm trying to go fast, but this is mind-blowing. I think you need to see it. We will never, a zillion years from now, have one moment in time where we go, wow, that was all God's power at once. You can't do it. It's immeasurable. And all of that infinite power has been directed to who? The church. His great might. But how have we seen some of God's power displayed? Verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. We have seen the power of God in a resurrection. Now here, resurrection assumes cross, payment of sin. You don't have a resurrection without the cross. He pays for our sin. That's why God raises him from the dead. But we have seen on planet earth in flesh and blood walking from a first century coffin a resurrection. We've only, it's only happened once in Christ. Where a man got up from the grave in a glorified body. You may say Lazarus. He, doesn't, he didn't have a glorified body at that moment. Jesus has a glorified body seated at the right hand of God. That is the power of God that has been displayed toward the church. And notice, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. In short, any possible power, seen and unseen, in the physical realm, men, leaders, spiritual realm, demons, Satan himself, Jesus having defeated sin and death, has been raised above them and he is seated at the right hand in a place of ultimate authority above every name, every reputation that will ever be known. Jesus is above all of them, not only in this age, but also in the age to come forever. He is in the highest place of authority because he defeated sin and death. This is the resurrection power. This is the ruling power of God. All other kings will fail. There's only one hero who is a former corpse right now. And he is ruling and he is reigning on your behalf. So all of these promises in the gospel, Paul would say, all of this hope in the kingdom, Paul would say, can't be taken from you. Why? Your king is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and he will not allow it to be taken away from you. It's yours because your king is Jesus and there's no higher king than Jesus and you can trust in his power that has been displayed in the resurrection that is currently being displayed as he rules and reigns at the right hand of God in verse 22, this power that is seen in the church again, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. God himself has made Jesus the ultimate king of glory. And he put everything that you can see, all power that would wage war against God, all of his opponents are under his feet. But notice, notice who Jesus has been given to as king, the church. And he describes him as our leader with this term, Head, which means authority. But then notice verse 23. He says, which is his body. You can't separate a head from the body. 
And you're not going to separate Jesus, who is our head, from the body, the church. The power of God displayed in the resurrection, this ruling king, has been connected to the church. That's why there's no weapon formed against us that will prosper. That's why nothing will ever overcome the church. Because the highest power, ruling king of heaven is our head, and we are his body. We can't be disconnected from him. He has immersed himself in us. He is intertwined with us. He has made himself one with the church. This is why this description at the end, Paul says, I'm out of words. So he gets really close to heresy here, but it's the Bible, the Holy Spirit, so it's not heresy. He says, the fullness of him which means the one who completes everything. Then he refers to the church, uh, or or the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the one who fills all in all. He completes all things. But then he says here, the church is the completion of him. That's what the word means. That the church is the completion of Jesus who is the completion of all things. How in the world does that happen? was Jesus' decision that he would see himself as incomplete without his church. In all of the promises, in all of the work of Christ, from before time ever began until eternity, zillions of years from now, without the church, Jesus would say it's nothing. He's made that decision as the one who is sufficient, eternally sufficient in and of himself. He has chosen to be incomplete without the church. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that all of these promises in the gospel can't be taken away from you. They can't. For God to take the gospel away from you, His love for you, His grace, His forgiveness, His commitment to you, it would somehow mean that Jesus had fallen off of His throne in heaven. And been defeated. And that will never happen. And that is the power of God in the gospel for the church. We have church members who are facing death very soon. One of the glories of being a pastor. Is you, you go from kids whose minds are being blown by styrofoam swords. And paper mache dragon to stand beside a hospital bed, a man who doesn't have long to live. And you want the five year old to know the power of God, that all of these silly, crazy things that we're talking about, these promises of God, when they believe, can't be taken away from them. And the man who can't see, we want him to know death can't take those promises because Jesus is ruling and reigning. We pray that for one another. All ages, all situations in life. There's some of us here today and we, we put so much emphasis in our, on our life on the American dream. And we look around and we are scared because it is being desecrated, it is being taken away, values in our country are being destroyed. 
And that's frustrating. That's disheartening. And yet, you need to know this. They may take America away from you. They can't take the kingdom of Christ away from you. And you need to know that power. There's a ruler who is seated at the right hand of God, and he is no waffling politician. He's the king of glory. Some of us here today, and we have no meaning. We have no purpose in life. We don't know why we were created. And here Paul says there is only one institution who the power of Jesus has been given to, and their mission is unstoppable. Jesus said he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you may be here today, and you're wondering what to do with your life. I don't know where you're going to work. But you will be miserable unless you're latched to Jesus' plan to build his church because it's unstoppable. And you can't be discontent in that mission. It's an eternal promise. And knowing all we have in the gospel, knowing the hope of the kingdom, and knowing the power of God as a church body helps us know God. That's when we pray for these things for one another. This week I was, or last week I was meeting with Linnell Webb and Tom Webb. Is, he has brain cancer and doesn't have long to live. And Linnell was talking with me and she said, I get mad and I get angry. And I'm, I'm you know, trying to figure out what to say. And I say, well, I begin to say, that is natural. And before I got the word natural out, she said, but then I go to the cross. She interrupted me. She said, I consider the fact in my suffering that God suffered for me. And how could the Father give His Son for me in such pain and agony? And she looked at me, and Tom even looked at me and said, we just know there's something good coming from this. We don't know what it is. And in that moment, because of my friends who are knowing God from the angle of brain cancer, I knew God more and better. Same God, same gospel. They're just looking at the diamond of the gospel from a different angle. And in all of my difficulty, I can know God is good. Not, not that I'm facing the same things they're facing. Even so, in my little piddly difficulties and frustrations, I know God is good. Because my friend is knowing God is good by believing the gospel. That's what we pray for one another.